Hi, Tasneem. Thank you so much for being with me. Hello, Will. It's a real pleasure joining you. I love that you're in Cape Town and I'm in the United States. And having this conversation is, is very meaningful because we can connect across the world. I wanted to begin in 1994. And this was when you won election to the Western Cape Provincial Parliament. And this was a very significant year in South Africa. As our listeners may know, it marked the beginning of the end of apartheid officially. And that was when Nelson Mandela was elected president. How did you feel in that watershed moment in South African history when you were elected to the provincial parliament? Well, of course, as you said, it was a watershed moment. And so that experience was really one that I had so many mixed feelings about. Firstly, the sense of disbelief that we actually got Mm -hmm. to that point in the country. I mean, when we were fighting against apartheid, I was a young activist. We never believed that we would get freedom in our lifetime. And then we did. And once Nelson Mandela was released from prison and the process of negotiations happened in the country, it is a pretty short time in which all of that happened. You know, it was in a matter of three years, really, um, to get to the point where we could hold our first democratic elections in the country. And I'm sure if people followed this, you would have seen the images of the long queues of people who were exercising their vote for the first time. Just that sense of we we did it, you know, it was a deep sense of disbelief. And so on my side, I was thinking something's going to happen. You know, this can't really be real. So that was the one feeling. Yeah. Of course, the overwhelming feeling was a deep sense of privilege that I was elected by the political party, the ANC, that was the majority party in the country, to be a representative in the provincial parliament. So this honor and this privilege to be able to serve the country, to help rebuild this country, you know, the things that we were fighting for to now try and put that into practice and make it a reality was an immense privilege. And then, of course, I have to tell you, Will, though, there was also a terrible feeling of disappointment in the Western Cape, because in the Western Cape, we did not win the elections. In fact, the old apartheid government won the provincial elections. And so I was going into a parliament, a provincial parliament that was going to be governed by the old apartheid national party. And so, of course, you know, just that sense of this is such an unbelievable moment and it's such a privilege. And yet we're going in not to serve entirely, you know, the agenda that we were all fighting for. But now we under a government that we thought we had done away with, essentially. So you can imagine the mixed feelings in that moment. But as I said, the overwhelming feeling, of course, was this immense privilege to, in fact, be part of making history. And I'm I'm so, so humbled and proud by, by that period to be, you know, nominated by the party and then going in there to serve was such a, a such a deep, deep privilege. That's wonderful. So I didn't know in Western Cape specifically that the pro-apartheid party remained in power. That makes me wonder, what did you learn about the nature of being in politics and government when you are up against so much opposition? Because I think that is a good 
segue into climate change specifically is there may be listeners around the world who want to go into politics to fight climate change, but are in this very difficult political environment. So what did you learn specifically from the Western Cape Provincial Parliament when apartheid was still in power in terms of advocating for what you believed in? I think essentially two things. One, maybe more than two things. One, that you absolutely have to stay true to your values and you continue working for and fighting for the things that, you know, the transformation that you were fighting for wasn't going to happen in the way you thought it was, but you continue that fight. It's in a different terrain and you use the opportunities of being an elected representative to continue speaking truth to power, to continue highlighting what it is that we actually struggled for uh, and fought for during the anti-apartheid struggle, what that vision was and how it was not being fulfilled by the current governing party in the Western Cape. And the second part was to always be connected to your base. So, you know, you're not sitting there, a parliament and the gap between the people and you as an elected representative grows bigger and bigger. That is absolutely Mm -hmm. the wrong thing. You know, your power comes from the people. Your power comes from that base. And so to continuously be working in communities, giving the information about what's going on inside of parliament, getting, you know, the conditions that people are living in that still needs to be transformed. All of that dynamic is really important to continually working for change. Even though we had our democratic elections, we won our freedom legally, apartheid was off the legislative books. The legacy of of apartheid remains right up to today. So your work never ends. So I think people need to recognize that, especially when there are huge, big struggles. and, And for me, apartheid was a global struggle because of all the kind of solidarity that we received, that kind of struggle and uh, linking that to climate change. These are not going to be easy struggles. It's going to take a lot of hard work. We're going to lose. We're going to win. We will make gains. We will have retreats, but constantly be true to your values and what you believe in. Be brave and courageous and speak truth to power and always be reminded that your power comes from the power of people, the collective power of people. Let's jump ahead to when you began focusing on climate change specifically. And I want to drill into what it is about government work specifically that is compelling for people trying to work on climate change. As I mentioned in your bio, you had two stints as a provincial minister in the Western Cape. So you began working more specifically on environmental issues. What are the benefits to working on climate change through politics or government specifically? The difference, of course, is that you have the power, literally, to bring about change. You literally have the power. And of course, you know, when I took over the portfolio of environmental affairs in the Western Cape, it it did not have a great track record and it did not have climate change as a big issue on the agenda. You know, I wasn't an environmentalist per se when I took over the portfolio. I'm really actually a social justice activist, a human rights activist, etc. And so with the instinctive sense of that, going into that portfolio. And when I received the briefings from my department about climate change, which I (laughs) learned about in more detail for the first time, 
admittedly, it just knocked me completely because, of course, then I went and read the science. I read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change fourth assessment report at that time, and it just hit me when I read Mm -hmm. that, that, in fact, there is a fundamental issue of justice when we deal with the issue of climate change, because those who are going to be most impacted are those who are suffering inequality, who are the poorest in our society, the most marginalized, etc. And then I realized that we cannot go and deal with climate change with the wider population in a way that is purely technical, that has too scientific in method of articulation, that you had to connect this to the lived experiences of people and be able to connect to their lives and what matters and and what potentially the risks are for them. Not in a way that, you know, would drive fear, but for that knowledge and understanding. And so I framed a slogan, I suppose, to make this point more clearly whenever we went out and worked on climate change and, and, uh, you know, just generally built awareness around this, I called climate change a poverty issue. And that was my attempt to actually get people to start understanding that really it is about poverty. It is about injustice. It's those that are least responsible that's going to bear the burden. Those who are responsible, the kind of the high income sectors of our society with their high unsustainable consumption, etc., would be causing this problem. And yet it's going to be the poor that suffered. So that was the biggest awakening for me in relation to the issue of climate change. It was at the start, it was clear, and it's been that for me throughout my work uh, dealing with trying to address climate change, that it is fundamentally a justice issue as well. Mm -hmm. That was one of my later questions is referencing the interconnectedness of different global challenges. How do you frame issues like climate change to appeal and to essentially be relevant and salient to people in politics. What sort of strategies do you use to build consensus on issues like climate change in an environment where, speaking in terms of politics, where that may not be an easy task? You know, there's a logic to this. It's not that you're going to come forward with this kind of spin, you know, political spin, you really have to take people through the logic of this. And here, the important thing is the science. You know, we have to be evidence-based. And politicians generally will say that they are evidence-based, that they make policies based on evidence, etc. But of course, we know that many politicians don't. But if you truly are there to do two things, one, to serve the people and their interests, and two, that you will do so on the basis of evidence, that it's not based on your your gut feeling for a particular day and then the next day. That, you know, they ask governance and that kind of stability and evidence-based approach is really important. And so if those factors, those conditions are in place, then it is absolutely logical for you to take people through an understanding, firstly, of how climate change works. What's causing climate change? And the the debates about whether this is human-induced or not would become irrelevant when you go and look at what the science says and what the evidence says. So if it is human-induced, what are we doing as humans that's inducing this climate change, you know, that's going to have all this risk and threats? And clearly, 
again, the evidence is there. The science has proven there's enough studies that show that the key drivers of climate change is our use and dependence on fossil fuels. And so there we have one. Well, that's one part of it, of course. There are other contributing factors to that. And so to see what's inducing climate change. And thirdly, who's most at risk? And there, that will be very clear as well, because in fact, the science tells us that too. It is those who are the most vulnerable to climate change, as I said, are those who are already vulnerable in our societies, right? And so if you truly care about your people as an elected representative, then you will do everything in your power to protect and ensure the safety of your people. And climate change is one of the most critical threats to people's safety. I'll ask one more question about your time in government, and then we'll shift to talking about nonprofit and and your time there. What do you recommend for people who want to run for office with climate change as sort of their driving value? I would say, please go for it, because what we need now is a critical mass of people who are in political power, who have a commitment to addressing this very dangerous threat that we are all facing in the world. So I I would encourage people to go in, get elected. If it's on the climate change ticket or on any ticket that's progressive, get into politics. If one person is there, of course, you can have your voice heard. Two people, yes, of course you can. But what we need to do is grow that critical mass inside the corridors of power. And that is the way you also can shift things. And I've watched, for example, what's happening in the US. And it's been very exciting for me to see young people coming in, women especially, and they just rocking the boat, right? They, <laughs> you can't ignore them. And so imagine that you had that critical mass and they in power how much they could do. So that's the one thing I'd like to encourage people who are really committed, have solid progressive value systems, not to be scared about going into politics. That is also an important site of struggle. But again, I want to come back to this point. You're not going into politics for the sake of the politics. You're going into politics because you want to change something. And you can only do that again if you have deep connections and rootedness to your base, to the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so when if you're going into politics on a climate change ticket, you for sure should be having the backing of your constituency on that ticket. That, that would mean... That, you know, you've, there's enough awareness, there's enough fight in your base to do this, to back you up when there are difficulties, to stand behind you when you raise voice, etc. So that's also going to be really important. And, and this is what we experienced, you know, we went into government, we were a liberation movement, now we're in government, and it's a very complex situation to be in, and many people who essentially lost their way. And eventually what happens is that you lose sight of why you've been elected and then the kind of pomp and ceremony of being an elected official and the status that comes with that, etc. You lose yourself. And so that is so important for me that you constantly remind yourself that you are there to serve. You've been elected to serve and to change things to improve the lives of people. That's it. And so, yes, I'd encourage lots of people to go with that agenda (laughs) and that commitment. Get into politics for sure. I love that. Leading with 
the people, I think is a great takeaway. How do you do that? How do you get people on your side? Well, you can take them through the logic and that's what you brought up earlier and be very clear about the evidence and basically put in the work to convince your people that this is an important issue. And then you'll get going. That that seems like the the path to take. Yeah. And look, well, when I was talking about the logic, it was mainly, you know, I was applying that to other politicians and decision makers, of oh. course, also with your base. But I, I do want to make an important point. There is this assumption that, you know, the people don't get it. I'm sure you've heard this. Oh, no, you know, they don't understand this. We need to go and educate them. And, you know, they're really only busy with things that matter to them in their lives. And I promise you that is if you haven't been working in communities, uh, you probably can believe that. But if you have Mm -hmm. been working in communities, you know, people get it. They're experiencing this, you know, they're experiencing it. And so, for example, in the U.S., again, I want to use your own examples. In in communities where people of color are living, those kind of environmental injustices that they experience, whether they're living near to a highly polluting industry or, you know, whatever they have raised, water pollution, etc., those communities know what they're fighting you know, they yeah. get it. So we shouldn't also make false assumptions and in a sense, be humble enough to appreciate the fact that there is knowledge that exists and that we are going to have to work together to figure out how we can win this big struggle yeah. uh, against injustice and climate injustice and environmental injustice. So yeah, I mean, communities get it for sure. Those mm. who suffer the injustices and have suffered, they get it. Just to summarize for our listeners, I think you've made some great points about the nature of government work. You came in with a sort of disbelief that you are even there in the first place, but then you learned over time to stay true to your values and stay connected to your base. And I I underline that point about your base because that seems like a really understated formula for doing well in government when you are trying to tackle a big issue like climate change. If you have people behind you who believe in you and believe in your message, then the legislation and the other actions that you can take become not easy, but perhaps easier. So that's a wonderful point. I wanted to transition now to your nonprofit work because your bio is is so fascinating to me because you were quite accomplished in South African government and then you decided to move to the nonprofit world and become equally accomplished in that sphere. So I love having you here because we can talk about both. So onto the nonprofit part. First, why did you leave? Why did you leave politics? I think it was 2008 when you did. Why did you ultimately choose to leave government and join the nonprofit world? And for our listeners, you started with the Worldwide Fund for Nature, and then you, of course, went to Climate Action Network. But what sparked that transition for you? There was a big rupture in our political party at the time. Mm. The political party elected for the party a new president. And that president and the support base that he had and the kinds of practices and actions that they were taking was not aligned with my value system. Mm -hmm. It was not aligned with what I believed we had struggled for during the days when we struggled for our freedom. Mm -hmm. And that kind of 
value system, the vision of transformation that we wanted, that we're serving our people, all of that started to diminish and potentially, in my view, would have diminished more and more under this new leadership. And I just couldn't be untrue to myself or untrue to them because I would not have had confidence in this leadership. And so why would I be there if I didn't have confidence in the leadership? So I chose to step out. I didn't finish my term as a minister, and I'm deeply sad about that, because, you know, I really would have liked to have finished my work, but I couldn't be untrue at that point. I I just had to step out. And so I resigned early. I resigned from government. I left parliament as well, so I resigned from parliament as well. But I did not resign from the political party. Uh, I did not remain active, but mm-hmm. I did not resign. Because, you know, if you've come through your entire life, almost, you, you know, your young life, I should say, as a young activist, I was always part of that movement. It was very hard for me to grapple with the kind of changes that was happening in the party itself. But you also still had deep emotional connections to that party. While I left official politics, I did not leave the party itself but I didn't remain active. And then, of course, all my other work in the nonprofits took over my life and very happy that I can still contribute with my own value systems to the overall work to help improve people's lives and to change things for the better and to deal with the kind of risks like climate change that will have an impact on those who are least responsible. So it wasn't necessarily the nature of nonprofit work that drew you away from politics. It was the the change in leadership and the feeling that you may not be able to accomplish what you wanted to in government, to perhaps put it simply. Was there something about the nature of nonprofit work that drew you to WWF and later to Climate Action Network? Because I, I want to help our listeners understand the differences between the two when it comes to fighting climate change. So when you went to WWF in 2008, what was it about their work and nonprofit work specifically that was a draw to you? So I have to tell you that I actually did not move directly from government into a nonprofit. You know, there was a period Mm. that I was sitting at home really depressed for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And I think, you know, WWF South Africa at that time, it wasn't international. I started through South Africa. The head of that organization... And I could know him when I was the Minister of Environment and many of the environmental groups, they really respected me and I appreciate that and respected the work that I had done and, you know, really using my political power to put environmental issues as a big agenda item that could not be ignored in the province. So I think in recognition of that, they just felt it would be a loss for me to be out of the environmental sector. So I was approached to join and come and remain part of Mm. the environmental sector. Now, why was I drawn to the nonprofit? In my whole life, I've not been drawn to spaces for profit. I'm deeply, deeply passionate about working to serve people. And I wouldn't have found that kind of option and opportunity in the private sector necessarily. I mean, the private Mm -hmm. sector, many parts of the private sector does good work. But for me personally, I could not be working for a for-profit organization. So it was natural that I come full cycle in my life. I was an activist 
during the days of apartheid. I was a trade unionist. So I've always been in a way an activist. And even I consider myself as a, I was a minister activist as well, because I yeah. used my political power exactly to do that. You know, what we were fighting for as activists. And then to come full cycle back was almost like a natural development, a, a natural evolution. And WWF, of course, they approached me, as I said, and I felt really comfortable about going into that organization because they were also grappling with their own transformation, you know, in South Africa, environmental issues and the environmental agenda is largely seen as a kind of middle class white issue. That's and it has been the case. And so when I was a minister, I was trying to push that transformation myself and the organization WWF was also trying to do that and needed support and guidance, etc. And so I suppose that was almost like a natural fit for me to go in there. What I've learned is that it's not necessarily something about the nonprofit world that draws you in. It's the sum of your life experiences that sort of convince you that this particular organization is a fit for me. So it, perhaps it wasn't to sort of reflect on what you said. Perhaps it wasn't, I want to go into climate nonprofit work, but it was, I still care deeply about this issue. And WWF seems like, in particular, a good fit for me. Yeah. Jumping ahead a little bit to sort of ground this discussion for our listeners and, and help them navigate all the paths they can take. What advice do you give, would you give a listener who wants to help solve climate change in the biggest way possible. Perhaps they're a young adult who doesn't know what they want to do with their life in the, in the short term, and they have several paths that they could go down. Perhaps they could work for government. Perhaps they could make a run to run for office in government. Perhaps they go into the nonprofit world or even the private sector so that, you know, there are all these paths. What advice do you tell those people who, who want to take the biggest chunk out of climate change? Well, any of those parts, you know, you have a role to play. If you choose to go into the private sector or into government or into, you know, or you just choose to be at home, you have a role to play. Yeah. And there'll be differing roles for sure. I mean, in government, you have an immediate opportunity to really bring about change. It could be difficult. You will meet resistance. You know, government isn't an easy place. But as yeah. I said to you, if you remain true to this, you keep at it. You just keep at it. So for sure, government, for immediate opportunities to change things, that's where power lies right mm -hmm. now. But do not underestimate the power, again, of people that are organized and act collectively. So, uh, you know, it could be that that happens via a non-profit organization, or that could be that your community just decided, well, they're going to take up this issue and they're going to organize. You know, yeah. you don't have to be in a non-profit to be organized. Mm -hmm. You take collective action. You might well decide one day you're going to get all your neighbors to come to your home and have a whole session on climate change. And it starts like that. And people say, well, well, what should we do? And then you look at what you can do, etc. So I, I don't think people need to get frozen. Right? Don't mm -hmm. feel that you have no agency to do things. Don't freeze yourself up. Free yourself up. 
you have power and agency and then connect with others. You might be able to do something alone. So some people feel every day they're going to write a letter to their elected representative or something, you know, or to a bank or to a, a, a fossil fuel company. Great. Fine. Uh, then you look at the next step. Uh, oh, but my neighbors are also wanting to do Let us all do this together. So again, recognize your own power, you know, use your agency that you have. Don't depend on others for whatever, you know, you have power. So government has power, but you have power. And a lot of government's power is dependent on your power. Mm -hmm. You must remember that. And so too in the private sector, you know, a, a lot of the private companies nowadays are really looking at ways to deal with climate change, to change their business models, to look at sustainability issues. You'll find your space there. My point here is that wherever you find yourself, you know, wherever that is, whether it is in a soccer team or in a, a religious institution or in a workplace, you know, if you are wanting to address climate change and you want to fight on this matter and try and do the best you can, you will do it. You will find a way to do that and, and just be active and speak up, of course, all the time. Yeah. It seems like a balancing act where on the one hand, you should recognize your own worth and your ability to make change on your own. But on the other hand, also recognizing the power of community and of multiple voices drawing on each other's skills and knowledge and experience to build something, the yeah. sum of which is greater than its parts. Absolutely. And that was a point that one of our earlier guests made, his name is Mark Reynolds, and he's the executive director of Citizens Climate Lobby here in the United States. So I, I, I loved that concept he brought up of perhaps the best way to solve climate change, aside from all the policies that are said to be the best approach, is building a community that can take action, whether it's a nonprofit community or it's a company or it's a a new political party or a new political organization that helps you run for office. So my question is, how should listeners go about building that sort of support network? What kinds of questions should they ask of others? What types of places should they go? I mean, if, if you're a listener who wants to take action and feel that energy from other people, but you don't really know how to make that those introductions and get that going. What do you tell those people? Well, look, there are in most, I mean, I think in every place, there are organizations that already exist, right? And so to be able to just search for that, nowadays that's actually pretty accessible, I think, through Google. <laughs> so <Yes>. Google, <laughs> right. I'm really sorry to say, but, you know, if you just Googled what organizations around me are involved yeah. in, climate change or whatever issue it is, you know, if it's broader sustainability issues, but who's doing work in my immediate space? And you'll find some, you will find something. It could be your local yeah. church, actually, you know, or whatever religious, whichever faith you are, it could be. So it is, of course, you will be galvanized then into pursuing that. So that's one way. Find out what already exists. If nothing exists, quite frankly, will. You know, this is what we did in South Africa. If there's no existing community organization, we will build that organization from the ground up. 
So we would have these, and I know I'm getting into quite a bit of detail. How simple would it be for you to host people in your little house for a house meeting, for example? And you can, you know, just gather them and have the conversations and things might move from there. So that's why I'm saying it doesn't have to be really complicated. And again, I do want to agree and emphasize you could act as an individual and, you know, that has its role. But I will always be promoting the collective. Mm -hmm. You are far more powerful when you are many. You are even more powerful when you are organized. And if you are even more powerful when you remain organized. So it's sustained over time. You know, yes, there'll be moments when people get exhausted and they'll drop out. But if, you know, you keep it organized because that's what you need right now. And there'll be times when people are so inspired, they will take unbelievable action, right? It's really important that people get organized. And that can happen, as I said, through existing organizations or you can establish your own. There's nothing difficult about just you know connecting with people okay COVID has now (laughs) COVID has had a terrible (laughs) impact on that but yeah you know when things open up again and people can do this safely just you know if nothing exists around you build something right and the power of the internet as well even during COVID times absolutely here here we are having this conversation exactly exactly Yes. yes I wanted to shift to your role at Climate Action Network because I would be remiss if we didn't talk about that in depth because I'm really captivated by Climate Action Network as an organization. It's the largest grouping of civil society organizations working on climate change in the world. What is the the current number? Is it over 1,500? 1,500 members. And when we say members, that's organizations, not individual members in over 130 countries. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And we're present in the US. (laughs) Yes, of course. What I I can imagine that leading that sort of group is a monumental task in some ways. What leadership lessons have you learned from guiding Climate Action Network and its many organizations? It's a network. And network leadership is somewhat different in that you always respect and take guidance from your members. So we are structured in two ways. One, we have what we call international members, and you would recognize that some of the big NGOs like WWF, Greenpeace, mm-hmm. ActionAid, Care, Oxfam, etc. Amnesty International has just joined us as well. So they big international NGOs. They are members. And then we have what we call nodes. And these are geographical nodes. So we have nodes in regions and nodes at national levels. US CAN, for example, is a national node. It's a huge national node. And then we'll have CAN South Asia, CAN Southeast Asia, etc. And so what I really have prioritized and emphasized in terms of the leadership I provide in this network is the importance of being a bottom-up driven network. Yeah. So I'm not this leader standing, you know, at the, <laughs> conducting an orchestra. Yes. I take the leadership actually from the bottom. So our nodes have to give us guidance about what their priorities are. They get informed by their members on the ground. So we build that up. And then we look at how we connect the kind of dynamic between the global and the local, etc. We as 
the secretariat that I lead, that's what we do. We build the connections, the synergies, we convene, we support. And that kind of building of solidarity across regions and communities, etc., is an, it's an important part of our work. So yeah, for me, the leadership in this network is really about respecting that it's coming from the bottom. And of course, you provide leadership from, you know, I do provide leadership, but I often would come in behind what has come forward already and then look at how we work on this and what direction we take in a strategic manner. I can advise and guide and things like that. But for sure, you take your lead from your members and the bottom, from the bottom Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah. To me, it seems like seemingly government is, you could say, sort of a top-down approach to climate change, where you devise solutions at the top levels of power, and then you implement them gradually at lower levels into communities, whereas can... Climate Action Network is very much not the total opposite, but it is bottom up. And to me, as I think about the future of climate action, I almost feel like Climate Action Network is a sort of blueprint for the most effective type of organization to fight climate change. And the reason I say that is because I view the internet and our growing connectivity as this really powerful tool to help various organizations connect around a central mission, share unique perspectives and solutions, and then implement them in their communities. Do you feel like Climate Action Network and civil society networks in general are this really exciting blueprint for going about solving climate change, not just in general, but in particular in 2021 at this current moment when we are increasingly connected and globalized? Look, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say that CAN is the blueprint. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yes. And we have a lot to learn and we need to be humble in that learning. But the kind of, as you describe, you know, this, this networked organization being connected, there's independence and respect for context and local context, but we connected because we're all working on the same issue or similar objectives. The fact that you are grounded and rooted in communities, I think that is a model for addressing big global crises. There's no single player that's going to address such a crisis on their own. And the more we are connected up, the better. It's not unique. There have been previous big struggles in our history where exactly the same thing happened, where people are connected from the bottom, they organize, and that happened with us in South Africa, a similar networked approach. Yeah, there were formal organizations, but there are also informal networks. So yes, I do think it is a model and social movements especially are very underestimated. Social movements who are really grassroots community organizations that also take on big fights. And you would see, especially in the global South, social movements taking on big fights against the construction of coal-fired power stations or mines. We all have very important roles to play. We all have different ways and tactics in which we do it. But the connections, the the networked nature of it is really important. Absolutely. That's great. It's time for me to give my two concluding questions. And as my listeners know by now, I I like to give very broad and hopefully thought-provoking questions to close. What do you tell people, stepping back from climate change, what do you tell people who want to change the world, but who don't know how? Mm. So again, I would start from where you are. 
right at a particular moment. So if you're a student, you have your context in which you work and operate. You have your circle of colleagues and peers or whatever. And you'll use that as a base. And you'll find others who also want to change the world. I come back to the same thing, that you start out from where you are and then you connect with others and you build up that collective and you work together with that. And you'll figure out where you are best placed to make a difference. You can't change the whole world alone, but you can join up with others who have similar objectives, who have similar value systems, who, you know, maybe everybody wants to change the world, but some would like to change it for the worse, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to obviously connect with people who have your, the same values, who would have yeah. the same levels of commitment and dedication and connect up and work together and organize. It will be my standard response to that question will. And it's based on my own experiences. And it's never let me down, whether I've been in anti-apartheid activist, in government, or again, back in civil society. It is a basic premise. If you want to change things, that is always going to be my advice. Thank you for that heartfelt answer. My last question is, what will the world look like once climate change is theoretically solved or kept under control and we begin living sustainably oh you know i want to dare to dream <laughs> <laughs> please do <laughs> you know i i honestly my wish is at the other end of all of this that we will have a far more just society, that we will have the kind of real deep injustices, whether it is gender injustice, whether it is racial injustice, that that would have been resolved, that we all respect each other, appreciate each other, acknowledge each other's value, and we're all making valuable contributions as a whole in whatever way that is. Obviously, will sustainable and the opportunities for that would be bigger but that we our starting point the base of this new world is a far more just one than it is now that is the biggest dream i have if we get behind this we have to land in a more just place tasneem it was uh, an absolute delight to speak with you today your story is inspiring your experiences are uplifting and i thank you very much for this great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for the time.